Lord, our lives are in your hands. And this morning we realize that you put breath inside of us. I'm praying, Lord, that we would trust you and use the vigor of mind, body, and soul to communicate the hope that we have, a living hope in you and that the soon return of Jesus. And I pray now that you'll bless us as we examine another significant player in the ancient history that points forward to the near future of how God's people can expect to see your intervention. So bless us now as we study the life of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're in a fifth in a series called Risk and Redemption. And we're looking at Daniel chapter 4, an amazing chapter, unique from all the other chapters, in that it is a testimony of the monarch of Daniel's day, Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know a lot about Nebuchadnezzar outside of the Bible. We know some things about Babylon. The stories that are told here in the Scriptures are sometimes uh, in parallel with others. There are other monarchs who give their lives over to a new god. Uh, An Egyptian uh, pharaoh made a similar choice. But this morning, when we look at Daniel chapter 4, we're looking at a testimony, the only chapter in the book written by somebody other than Daniel. And so this morning, I want us to understand that God creates divine appointments. Open your Bibles up to Daniel chapter 4, Risk and Redemption, the last word. Daniel chapter 4. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 1, king of all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion is from generation to generation. What we should see at the beginning of this story, written by the hand, spoken by the the voice, the the lips, the mouth, the tongue of this great monarch is that on the other side of his chastisement, he is praising the Lord. Sometimes on the front side, things don't look so good. Sometimes in the middle, things seem pretty uncomfortable. But at the end of the journey of a faithful God, this is the testimony of one who aligns himself with the cause of heaven and declares himself to be a follower of the Most High God. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring in to my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Now, I want to stop at the beginning of this narrative between between Nebuchadnezzar and the wise men. I want to point out several things. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar is the most significant somebody of the ancient world. But he's a human being just like everybody else. And he needs somebody who will potentially be 
not nearly as significant. We might say he as a somebody may need a nobody. In this case, we trust it's been Daniel for certain and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in all likelihood. And how many others we don't know. But every person stands in need of an encounter with the living God. Every mortal man, no matter what his station or position in life, needs an encounter that delivers them from the taint of sin, from the knowledge that they will die and that their life is temporary, they're mortals. Nebuchadnezzar is a story about ministry to the rich and the influential. And we know that along the way, God uses insignificant people to do this. So I want you to know at the beginning of this message, God will often use a nobody to reach a somebody if those terms are even appropriate. We know that he used a little maid to reach Naaman. We know that he used a little prophet in the making named Samuel to attempt to reach Eli. We know that Jesus, before he was a somebody in Israel, was a nobody at 12 years of age, but God was using him to reach the religious institutions of his day. God is not into evaluating people based on their station and their position in life. And if there's an important thing for all of us to learn is that people are just people. And while some hold more responsibility and have a life of greater culture and opportunity, God will often send something simple, someone simple, who practices a simple encounter, a living relationship with God to connect the dots. It's important for us to understand that God doesn't want us to be overly impressed with our fellow men or women. There is honor where honor is due. We know that Paul will write of double honor going to an elder who serves worthily. But this morning, nobody began to become equal with Nebuchadnezzar in regards to influence and power and and judgment. And yet God is going to intervene in his life and say, judgment is for everyone. This is an important part of this story. Nebuchadnezzar had attempted to elongate the vision of the previous chapter with, well, two chapters, chapter 2 with an all-gold image. But Nebuchadnezzar was a mortal. And no matter how much power he held in the moment, it was all going to be stripped from him. Nebuchadnezzar is favored to have an encounter where he's reminded that he's mortal and he doesn't control everything. We don't control everything either. As a matter of fact, it is a truly false narrative constructed by our own hands, our own thinking, and our own words, our own networking, where we attempt to make security beyond what God would have us make it. We are in a position where our breath is not in our own hands. It's placed in our nostrils by God, even in this COVID moment. Our mortality is not a function that is without willfully neglecting common sense Our mortality is not a function of our own doing. It is a function of God's decision-making. Our days are written down in a book before any of them come to be. Our tears are collected in our bottle. Our breath is held in the hands of God. Security is to come from a living trust, a living relationship, walking in the will of heaven. This is certainly a story of judgment. Judgment is a theme in the book of Daniel. 
It's a developing theme. And in this case, it is personal judgment. But verse 7 is a very interesting verse. The magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. If you're reading from a King James Version today, it doesn't say they could not. It says they did not. And while I don't want to make too much over this variation in the Hebrew language or its interpretation, I think it's important for us to see what happens inside the experience of Daniel's world. What's going on is that slowly God is dismantling the wisdom of this world. The intelligentsia appear less able to make a difference as time goes on. Now, Daniel has a divine appointment with Nebuchadnezzar, not one that he could imagine. The Bible's going to tell us that Daniel was a stony, if you have the King James Version, astonished, if you have a newer version, appalled. This is a story in which Daniel is stunned by how abrupt God's intervention with this heathen tyrant is. Not always heathen, by the way. Ellen White will describe him as a king who actually ruled with righteousness and mercy. But in the time since Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's encounter with him on the plain of Dura and God's appointment, a revelation not only to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but to Nebuchadnezzar himself, Nebuchadnezzar's backsliding. And he comes to a point in his walk or interaction with God and his overseeing, his sovereignty of his rulership upon his subjects, that he becomes cruel and exacting. And God steps in to save this man. Daniel could not for a moment imagine that God would be this abrupt, but a strong man is going to receive a strong rebuke from heaven. Now, I want to spend a few moments on this idea of could not versus did not. So these wise men who can't tell the dream in chapter 2, who can't interpret the dream in chapter 3, who can't even read the writing on the wall by the hand in chapter 5, these wise men are progressively being discredited as time goes by. I want all of us to pay attention to what's going on in society right now. Human beings are coming to a place where they have less and less ability to solve the problems of earth. We're coming to a place where lots of people recognize things are like that top. You've had a top before. You wind the string around it. You give it a pull or you take your fingers and you twist it. And it spins and it's an amazing little device working off unique laws of physics. But when it starts losing its momentum... It begins to wobble. And once it begins to wobble, how long is it before it falls down and spins out of control on the, on the hard surface that you began its orbit on? This is where we're living today. But if we're continuing to bow down to the wiseness of this age, we're going to find ourselves less and less comfortable, less and less confident, less and less sure as time goes by. Daniel's compadres, Daniel's cohorts of, of those of the intelligentsia of, ne of Nebuchadnezzar's realm 
probably understood what Nebuchadnezzar understood. And since it was in their best interest to tell him what they wanted to hear, they just decided in this arena, since everybody could kind of tell this was portending negatively, that they're not going to talk with Nebuchadnezzar about what it means. How much wisdom would it have taken to explain what was going on in this dream? Well, we don't know. We know Daniel had it. But could not versus did not is a pretty big difference. And there are some who certainly believe it ought to read did not. I'm of that opinion. I'm not a Hebrew expert. You can't conclusively come down one way or the other. But it appears to me when you have a vested interest primarily in yourself, did not serves you better than could not. Which is an important point for us. Because last week when we were looking at Stand and Deliver, this journey of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we understood from the narrative that being in the position they were in, they knew before they made it to the plain of Dura that they were going to be tested and they were making decisions long before they were tempted to bow down to the idol. They were making decisions that distinguished themselves from everybody else so that the the wise men on the plain of Dura knew that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not serve Nebuchadnezzar's gods and they weren't bowing down right now. They got it right on both counts. For these wise men, it wasn't in their best interest to tell Nebuchadnezzar the truth. And many times in your relationships, you are an intelligent group of people, you recognize that it's not in your best interest to tell somebody the truth either. Now, mind you, I'm not here advocating today that we don't operate with a high level of social discretion and relational understanding. It's not for us to go about being the people who, who knock everything down. We're the bull in the proverbial religious china cabinet shop. That's not what I'm suggesting. As a matter of fact, if there's anything that the book of Daniel teaches, and that is that God's end time people will have the highest social EQ. They will be the most socially aware people on the face of the planet. They will not be impinging negatively on their own credibility because their credibility is the salvation of others. No, Daniel is not looking to wound the king. As a matter of fact, Daniel is so astonished that for a period of time, he cannot bring himself to tell the king what the dream means. And the king is in the posture of wanting and needing to encourage him. Could not versus did not. Daniel decides that he will do it. The reason Daniel can do it and Daniel will do it is multiple. Number one, Daniel is faithful to God. He's going to deliver the message that he's supposed to give. Listen, friends, the messages that are supposed to be given aren't all saved up for a few people. All of you are in a circle of relationships. All of you are in a network of friendships. God actually puts you in the path of other people with divine appointments. This one was divinely constructed through a dream, which I'm not going to comment on a lot right now. But this one is divinely directed and brought to the surface. Daniel had a position in the kingdom that nobody else could equal, save Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel was not anticipating having such a direct role in a divine rebuke. 
And that's where Daniel finds himself. And it might just be that as we approach the end, as judgment looms, you might find yourself in the same kind of position. Your credibility will need to be high, which is why your social EQ will need to have been at a very high level. Because when you're careless with your words and you wound unnecessarily in other situations, the wounds of a friend, the wounds of heaven, are received as social bumbling and stumbling, not as divine scalpel holding with the minimal amount of pain. But yes, indeed, it does hurt. God is actually calling us to be the the sweetest, most beautiful, most sensitive, most well-adjusted socially people there are so that when we come to moments like this, it doesn't hurt more than it has to. And yes, it is said. Perplexed, embarrassed, you might translate the word. Daniel is astonished. But he's going to go forward with what he has to do because a man's, a man's immortal experience, a man's salvation is hanging in the balance. Nobody else is going to tell Nebuchadnezzar. Why else are people unfitted for these encounters? Because they don't really care. Just like the wise men. They know that to say this is going to create relational turbulence. They know that to say this is going to strain a relationship. They know that that there's a measure of benefit that comes to them with everything being okay. I'm okay, you're okay. The truth of the matter is, is that just like people get physically sick, they get relationally sick, they get spiritually sick, and somebody's got to intervene or else things die. Things atrophy, things move to dysfunction. And dysfunction is a slow version of death and pain. Daniel says, I will go through with this. What do you do when you're astonished for an hour? Which is a general phrase in the Hebrew. It doesn't mean 60 minutes. We don't know how long Daniel was thinking to himself, how do I tell him this? But we do know this, is that Daniel's astonishment, as well as Daniel's willingness to speak, says that there's a person in the kingdom that actually loves the king enough to explain to them that his future hangs into the balance. It's the future of seven years of living like a beast, but it's more than that. It's a future that either comes to an abrupt end as Nebuchadnezzar is his own God for all of his life, or there's an encounter with the living God. Nebuchadnezzar's immortal. He's going to die. He's powerful in the moment, but somewhere down the road, he'll be weak and aged, and he'll lay in the dirt just like everybody else. Could not versus did not. Finally, verse 8, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and to whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and I related the dream to him. Daniel gives the interpretation. Verse 9, O Belshazzar, chief of the musicians, since I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, And no mystery baffles you. Tell me the vision of my dreams, which I have seen, along with its interpretation. Now these were the visions. In my mind, as I lay on my bed, I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. 
The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and the living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions, and in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let them be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. Let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a commandment of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High ruleth over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make it known to me. But you're able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. And Daniel bears the bad news. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. And Daniel replied, My Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. He's going to deliver the news. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was found food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you, O king. For you've become great and you've grown strong, and your majesty became, has become great and reached to the sky, and your kingdom to the end of the earth. And that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it and the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beast of the field until seven periods of time pass over. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. That you may be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beast of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass over until you recognize the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots in the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O King, and this is a pivotal verse, therefore, O King, may my advice be pleasing to you, Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging 
of your prosperity. Daniel will not only hurt for the king, speak to the king, but he will appeal to the king to change. Now, if there's one thing human beings don't like to do, they don't like to change. We don't like to change. There's something about us. We find comfort in a certain channel or path. You might say road. You might say rut. And we walk on in that direction until something deflects us or we see something we didn't see before. Daniel is a man of the 21st century. He's an apocalyptic prophet in that he not only will speak the truth because he cares, he will not only risk his position with a boundless authority, a tyrant, a man of emotion we've already seen in the book of Daniel, angry much of the time, but Daniel will go so far as to not only speak, not only care, but Daniel will appeal And it is an appeal to change, to break away from what the king is doing that is wrong, who dares tell the king he's doing anything wrong, who dare tells a modern citizen of the Western world that they're wrong, who dares suggest that somehow that nagging guilt that I can't get rid of is actually a divine prescription or description of a spiritual malady, who dares say these things, Daniel dares dare to be a Daniel. Daniel actually has been thrust into this situation. He didn't create it, which might be a safe prayer to pray for all of us, for all the relationships we're in. None of us should rush off to this kind of encounter. As a matter of fact, it should be against our nature to have to have it but thrust into the moment by God's directing. And the directing that brings you into an encounter like this may not be quite as divine in its circumstantial uniqueness and dreams of the night. But you might know that God has now concocted and created and directed, and you're in an engagement with somebody where you should go a little farther than you'd usually go. It was sufficiently affirmed to you by heaven that you should speak and not be quiet. Daniel will go all the way to appealing, knowing that his God is gracious and that there could be a turning away from the foretold judgment. And Daniel risking the idea of actually saying the dream is true and yes, King, you know you're not walking in the path of righteousness. But the king doesn't listen. And that's not really written down. It's just written between the lines. How many times has somebody said to me, talking to that person won't do any good? Daniel could have walked away from his encounter with the monarch wondering about where he stood. What's not written down is whether or not there was a cooling off between the king and his prime prime minister. We know that by the time we get to Daniel 5, Daniel's been sidelined. He's been marginalized. There may have been a period of months in which Daniel was not called in too often because Daniel represented a reminder of the troublesome dream. Conjecture, yes. Normal, yes. Possible, for sure. 
But we do know this, is that Daniel determined in his heart that not only must he speak and that the message was true, but he must appeal to the man to move according to the divine intervention. Verse 28, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Verse 29, 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. And the king, afflicted by hubris, arrogance of the highest order, pride, the king reflected and he said, look at this. Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residency by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, I want to hit the pause button right there because while Nebuchadnezzar has feet of clay and he is as human as everybody else, there's not a person, including the preacher, who doesn't have the same proneness to this spiritual problem. We would love God to be with us in the pilot seat or at least next to us in the other seat. We would love for our lives to stay cruising at an altitude in which all things are good. We don't really want to make adjustments. We really do resist. The sermon was for everybody else. We can deflect even the more personal encounters we have. And we can carry on eventually subjugating that still small voice to the more compelling interest of life and the more positive elements of our experience. Isn't this what I've created? I'm not such a bad person. Look at what I've done. But whether you're the monarch without equal and it appears without accountability, or whether you're the slave who shows up, the the, the captive that shows up in Babylon a few decades before, God can and will do for the salvation of his children whatever it takes. And in this encounter, God is about to enact something that he wishes could have been taught another way. But it can't. While the word was in the king's mouth, verse 31, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. You will be driven away from all mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and I honored Him who lives forever. 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored from, to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways just. And he's able to humble those who walk in pride. I want to ask you something. Why didn't God just come down with an angelic being? Why didn't God just skip the dream? Why didn't God just come down and talk to Nebuchadnezzar and tell him what was going to happen? Why does he give him days? We don't know. Maybe weeks. Maybe only minutes. Because when you're Nebuchadnezzar, you can have what you want when you want it. So if you wake up in the middle of the night and you want to know what the dream means, maybe you just wake everybody else and get them gathered in the royal court. But why do it in the form of a prophecy? Why do it in the form of a dream? There's something about sort of knowing but not knowing, that takes the attention of man and starts focusing it towards understanding. There's something about a dream that requires an interpreter. And there's an involvement for the people of God, in this case, Daniel. God actually is adjusting the interest of a man and then explaining the problem through another man. But how much more convenient would it have been if Daniel didn't have to be in the dilemma? God has a whole book before us here, a book for which many of us find very little time for attention. But this book portends judgment. That is the focus of the book of Daniel. Under 2,300 days, mornings and evenings, Daniel 8, 14, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And there is a whole people for whom a message is to be given to the world, for whom much of the world has not yet even been troubled. The dream has already been given. The vision has already been shared. And yet many people are walking on to eternal destinies, which are destruction, doom, and they don't even know it. God's already given the dream. God's already given the interpretation. But much of the world slumbers on, relatively untroubled. And yet the wisdom of the wise men is being debunked. All those things that we've taken for granted are unraveling. And God has a people to be announcing that not only have the dreams and the visions been shared, which portend to a global application of this very thing, only an end of grace is coming. And we as a people slumber. And we as a people are afraid. And we as a people don't care. And it would appear that like many of the wise men of Daniel chapter 4, it's all right with us if we leave them flattered 
with the absence of confrontation and the supposed appreciation or at least lack of, of, of rejection of their godless lives which are leading to godless graves which are leading to a godless eternity. The Bible tells us very distinctly at the end of the age what kind of people there's going to be. Haters of mothers and fathers, insolent, disobedient. And we find ourselves tempted, like the wise men, to retract back into little pockets of security where we say the things we feel comfortable saying to the people we feel comfortable saying them to. And yet God is actually calling us to be ready for divine encounters with a divine love with a divine appeal that a world should break away from their sins by doing righteousness. Last night I was in a little worship service and we sang a song I haven't heard in a long time. It goes like this. Troublesome times are here, filling men's hearts with fear. Freedoms we all hold dear now is at stake. It goes on in the chorus. There was a line that caught my attention. It's like, No wonder we don't sing this anymore. Part of the chorus said, many will face their doom. Nobody wants to talk about doom today. Everybody wants to act like this globe is spinning on its axis and it's not starting to do the wobble. And yet most of us are starting to sense, even the ungodly are starting to sense, there's a little more wobble than there used to be. What is the role of God's people in this moment? Is there a wake-up call that God gives? Do we care enough to be in the game? Are we different enough to be listened to? God is calling a proud world to raise their eyes to heaven. God is looking to give an invite to humble yourself before God so that we could know that there is eternal king coming. The stone cut out without hands of Daniel chapter 2. It's on its way. It's going to smite the image. It's going to smite the earth. Yes, many will meet their doom. Is that okay with us? There will be a last word. There will be a final pronouncement. Let him who is holy be holy still. Let him who is unjust be unjust still. And how are we? I have a list in my hands here of quotations. All of them from the Bible. They're all about the fear of man. Fearing people is a dangerous trap. Proverbs 29, 25, but trusting the Lord brings safety. Isaiah 51, 12, I am the one who comforts you. Who are you that you're so afraid of humans who will die? Descendants of mere men who have been made like grass. Psalm 27, the Lord's my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord's the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Hebrews chapter 13, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can any man do to me? Psalm 56, verse 4, I'm not afraid. What can flesh and blood do to me? Psalm 56, 10 and 11, I praise God for he's promised. Yes, I praise the Lord for what he's promised. I trust God, so why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? 
Isaiah 51, 7. Hear me now, you who, who know what is right, you people who have taken my instruction to heart. Do not fear the reproach of mere mortals or be terrified by their insults. 1 Peter 3, 14. But if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. We know that it was fear that led Peter to deny Jesus. Painful moment in his life. John chapter 12. Jesus speaking. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. Now here's the words of Christ. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear. They'd be put out of the synagogues for they loved human praise more than the praise of men. And finally, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. That's me, that's you, folks. We were put in trust with the gospel. Even so, we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which tries our hearts. Yes, we're living in a fragile age, but who is God putting divinely in your life? And what is your level of social awareness? There will be a last word. Before there's a last word, there should be a word from you and I. We should be on our knees in prayer for the people in our lives, some of them in significant positions, holding significant responsibility. Some of them in our family, wandering away from that which we've sought to instill in their hearts. Some of them are friends. Some of them are co-workers. God has not destined us to a life of constant confrontation and an abuse of relationships, but He has called us to make sure that we will be to the people in our orbit what we are to be. And so I'm appealing to you this morning as we hang in the balance wondering who will lead this nation, as we wonder as to which way the pendulum will swing God is looking to create divine encounters, divine moments, and yes, some of them will be uncomfortable and unpleasant. And may the credibility of a living Christ with the highest caliber of a social awareness mark itself with a carefulness of expression that recognizes the dignity of all people. Every person should be treated with as much dignity as Daniel related to Nebuchadnezzar. But every person should be appealed to when God ordains, the appeal should be made so that the last word would be, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I plan to meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. I believe he'll walk those golden streets. I believe he was a good king full of himself, not so unlike many postmoderns. I believe that he was a man who really did seek to create shade and food and security for his kingdom. And I believe when it was all said and done, he stands in stark contrast to his grandson, who is Belshazzar of chapter 5. And why in chapter 5, Daniel would say to the grandson, here you are partying with all the vessels of God, and you know all the chapters about your grandpa's life. Daniel stayed the same. 
Daniel grew in grace. Daniel is the life and the person and the practitioner of the arena just before Christ returns. May the nobility of Christ mark the nobility of this generation, this church, and its message. And may we understand we've been called to give the last gospel message. And by God's grace received, it will lead to eternal life. The last word is to have glory. The last word is to have love. The last word is to have courage and power. And the last word is to lead people into a saving relationship with Christ. Whether it's the highest order or whether it's the most out-of-the-way person in the most out-of-the-way place, may our lives be dedicated to a love and a readiness to move at God's direction, with God's kindness, and with God's courage in the moments He creates. May God bless us as we live this way, anticipating the judgments of heaven. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.